This morning we are returning to the first chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. Now that doesn't mean we're going to start all over again. Don't worry. But we're going back to read from chapter 1 that particular passage of Scripture through which, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, Martin Luther rediscovered the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. But before we read the Holy Word of God, let us prepare uh, by receiving the instruction from the Heidelberg Catechism, which speaks to the issue of our justification being made right with God. And so the Catechism asks, How are you right with God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. In spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have not kept any one of them, and that I am still ever prone to all that is evil, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, out of pure grace, God grants to me the benefits of the perfect sacrifice of Christ, imputing to me his righteousness and holiness as if I had never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful, as if I myself had fulfilled all the obedience which Christ has fulfilled for me, if only I accept such favor with a trusting heart. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, we give you thanks For the glorious gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent into the world so that we might not perish, but have everlasting life. And who, in loving obedience to you, did not turn away, but offered himself unto death, even death on a cross, for his church, his bride, whom he loved. And we give you thanks that by the grace of the Holy Spirit, You call your people out of darkness into everlasting life. That we might walk in the light of Jesus Christ and not stumble in darkness. Grant, O Lord, the light of your truth now. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through the reading and hearing and proclamation of your word. For the upbuilding of your people in faith. And for the glory of your name. Amen. The Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, beginning at verse 16. The holy word of God, it is written. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And now to him who loves us, who has washed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all honor, praise, glory, and dominion, together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God eternal. Amen. Caution. Slippery. 
when wet. Narrow bridge. Watch for falling rock. Familiar warnings boldly displayed on fluorescent yellow highway signs intended to catch our attention and to convey an immediate sense of danger. Familiar warnings intended for our good so that we will drive safely and arrive alive. Familiar warnings, messages to save us. Wrong way. Do not enter. And then there's that other warning. It's not put up by the highway department because it It's warning us not about the the poor conditions or dangerous circumstances of the road ahead. Rather, it is warning us about the poor and dangerous condition of the human heart and soul and mind and will. You've seen it. There it is. You can see it. You can see it in your mind's eye in bold, blood-red letters on the tin roof of that old dilapidated barn. You see it? Get right with God. Now, despite the fact that some people might scoff at that or try to deny the need to get right with God, the fact remains that in every human soul, not assured of salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ, there is this gnawing, nagging sense that something just isn't right. And I'm not quite good enough, and my personal best isn't either. And that is what troubled and tormented the soul of a young monk in the 16th century. How can a sinner stand in the presence of a holy and righteous God? His name was Martin Luther. He was called, among other things, a wild boar running loose in God's vineyard. It was not intended as a compliment. But this wild boar of a monk would not be domesticated or intimidated, not even by all the powers of church and state. The Protestant Reformation began in earnest 500 years ago on All Hallows' Eve. October 31, 1517, when Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And other faithful and bold men had come before Luther as forerunners of the Reformation, and others followed after, such as John Calvin and John Knox, to whom we Presbyterians are more closely aligned. But But it is Martin Luther whom history credits as the man who lit the fire of revolution known as the Protestant Reformation which spread across Western Europe and then to the new world of America, changing Western civilization. Not only with regard to religion, but also politics, 
economics, education, and family life. We, we uh, in contemporary American Christianity, we, we think too much about the spiritual life as a, as a single and isolated compartment of our life. Sort of we compartmentalize. That's not, that's not true biblical faith. The reformers saw all of life being lived before the face of God and for His glory in every arena of life. So indeed it was a revolution. Just as the Copernican revolution brought about a new way of understanding the universe with the sun at the center of the universe rather than the earth, so Luther's rediscovery of the true biblical gospel of Jesus Christ brought about a revolution in the church with the grace of God through Jesus Christ at the center rather than the works and merits and religious rituals of men and women at the center. Luther had no intention of dividing the church. He had no intention of starting a so-called new church. That would have been completely foreign to him. But the issues on which Luther called for debate were issues which lay at the very heart of the gospel. How can a sinner stand in the presence of a holy and righteous creator? And once those issues were publicly raised, they set in motion a revolution which would not, could not be reversed. A wild boar was running loose in God's vineyard and thus began not only the Protestant Reformation, but also the reconstruction, the renewal of Western civilization. We are the heirs of that. We are the beneficiaries of that. We wouldn't be here today were it not for what took place 500 years ago. One historian has noted on the front cover of the bulletin, one historian has referred to John Calvin as the virtual founder of the United States of America. That's another subject. It's a really good one, but we're not going there this morning. Luther's 95 Theses called for debate on the unbiblical practices of the medieval Roman church, particularly the sale of indulgences. It was supposed that by making a financial contribution to the church, a person could release the soul of a loved one from purgatory and even lessen one's own time due in purgatory. One of Luther's arch rivals, a priest's, A priest named Johann Tetzel proclaimed to the people, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Well, we may laugh, (laughs) but let's not kid ourselves. We all know that there are people today, including Protestants, Christians in name only, and unbelievers who think, suppose that by making a special donation to the church, they have somehow bought off God and cleared their conscience by their contribution. 
At the heart of Luther's concern, however, was the purity and truth of the gospel. That's what it's about. Uh, The heart and the purity and truth of the gospel by which a life of true personal faith could be lived in the assurance of eternal salvation. This emphasis on living by faith was expressed in the first of Luther's 95 Theses, which states, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. In other words, true repentance, true turning away from sin and turning to follow Jesus Christ is is not simply a matter of going into a confessional box as a matter of religious ritual. And he would say to Protestants, it's not a matter of simply walking the aisle one time or however many times. Not simply a matter of dressing up, showing up, checking the box on Sundays. Religious ritual. But rather, an entire life lived in conscious awareness of the continual need of God's grace and mercy in Christ received by faith and responded to with joyful Thanksgiving, life, all of life, turning away from sin, turning to Jesus Christ with thanksgiving in our hearts. Number 62 reads, The true treasure of the church is the holy gospel of the glory and grace of God, as opposed to the treasures of the church coffers. For us, may I say, May I? As beautiful as that new sanctuary will be, and let me tell you, I'm excited about it. I'm really excited about it, and I'm really thankful for it. And as beautiful as it will be, it must not be our treasure. Our true treasure must be the holy gospel of the glory and grace of God and Jesus Christ. And may that new sanctuary simply be a means toward proclaiming the true treasure of the Holy Gospel. Numbers 94 and 95 conclude the theses stating number 94, Christians should be exhorted to be zealous to follow Christ their head through penalties, deaths, and hells. And number 95, let Christians be more confident of entering heaven through many tribulations rather than through a false assurance of peace. Well, in those last two, we can hear a foreshadowing of the last verse of Luther's hymn, A mighty fortress is our God. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So at the heart of the Reformation, was Luther's rediscovery of the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. While he was preparing his lectures on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, Luther's eyes and heart were spiritually opened by the Holy Spirit as he meditated on Romans 1.17. The righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the verse which set the heart of Martin Luther free from the torment. And he was personally tormented with a sense of his own unworthiness, the burden of his unrighteousness, the fear of eternal condemnation. He, a monk, lived in that torment without any assurance that he was saved. Why? Because he was constantly trying to save himself and he could never, ever do enough. But as he meditated day and night on this verse, he began to understand that the righteousness of God is a gift of God. A right standing with God is a gift of God, a gift of sheer, unmerited grace to be received by faith in Jesus Christ. When Luther realized that righteousness, a right standing with God, being made right with God, a right relationship with God is is freely given to those who trust and receive God's promise of salvation through Jesus Christ. He said, quote, this, this immediately made me feel as though I had been born again and as though I had entered through open gates into paradise. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. What was it in this verse which opened the gates of heaven for Martin Luther? It was the realization that our righteousness, our justification before God depends not on what we can do to save ourselves, but on what Jesus Christ has done for us. As we sing in the hymn, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. This is what the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone is all about. Do you know what Jesus Christ has done for you? I expect that most Christians would answer that question by saying, Jesus died for my sins. And that is true. That is wonderfully true. Yes, Jesus died for your sins. But that is not all that Jesus Christ has done for you. Before he died for you, he lived for you. He lived out his human life 
under the law of God as a man accountable to God. In his life on earth, he rendered perfect obedience to a holy and righteous God. The fact that he was the Son of God incarnate did not make it any easier for him to live a perfectly obedient, sinless human life. He was tempted by Satan to a degree we can't even begin to imagine. He was tempted in every respect as we are, yet he did not sin. He sweated great drops of blood in Gethsemane as he agonized in prayer, submitting himself to his Father's will. Not my will, but yours be done. Death on a cross. He, he uttered that prayer for you. He was obedient for you. Obedient unto death. Jesus Christ is the only man who ever lived that never sinned against God. Think about that. His relationship with God, his Father, was never violated. There was never a breach in the spiritual union between Jesus and his Father, never a break in the relationship. Jesus Christ is the only man since Adam's fall who could stand. He could stand on his own merits, his own righteousness, in the presence of his holy and righteous Father. Jesus Christ lived the life God required of Adam, but which Adam failed to live. Now think about it. Jesus Christ lived the life which God requires of you and me, but which we can never live. But Jesus Christ lived that life for you, in your place, in your stead, on your behalf. He lived that perfectly righteous, sinless life for you, for your account, for your credit. Jesus Christ did for you what you could never, ever do for yourself. He lived for you a perfectly righteous life in a perfectly right relationship with God His Father. Then, on the cross, something terrible and something wonderful took place. On the cross, God placed our sins upon the sinless one. As the prophet Isaiah spoke, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. As 1 Peter 2.24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Romans 3.25 refers to Jesus as he whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That is, Jesus is the wrath of bearing, wrath-absorbing, wrath-placating, sin-atoning sacrifice whom God Himself offered up for us in our place so that we might be justified by His grace 
as a gift to be received by faith. This is the great exchange. Christ for sinners. Christ for you. What belonged to us, our sins, our guilt, our unworthiness, our unrighteousness, and therefore our condemnation, became His on the cross. Listen, listen to this, think of this. Our sin, yours and mine, our real and actual sins were were dealt with. There was provision made. The, the, this is not theoretical. This is actual. This is not general. It's specific. It's personal. God's holy justice was served, was executed against sins. God's righteous wrath was poured out against our sins, your sins, my sins, our real, actual, specific, personal sins were dealt with once for all, for all time. On the cross, that provision was made. It was your personal condemnation, your death under the judgment of God that Jesus suffered on the cross. That provision has been made. There is a way to be made right with God forever. This is the reason that the scripture says at Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because that condemnation has already taken place on the cross. Are you in Christ? Condemnation for your sins has already been executed upon Him who loved you and gave Himself up for you. And if Jesus has paid for all your sins, there is nothing left for you to pay. But furthermore, furthermore, to secure our salvation, what what rightly belonged to Jesus... His righteousness, His worthiness, His right standing with the Father, His justification before a holy God, His record of a sinless life lived in perfect obedience, all that belonged to Him was freely offered to us as a gift to be received through faith so that Jesus' righteousness might become our righteousness so that His right standing with the Father might become our right standing with the Father. It is all about what Christ has done for us. This is what it means to know Christ as your personal Savior. Luther said that true faith is to, quote, Put my trust in Christ. Surrender myself to Him. Make bold to deal with Him, believing without doubt that He will be to me and do to me just what is said of Him. That is, 
that He will take away my sins and give to me His righteousness. And when we have real spiritual union with Christ through faith, when He is ours and we are His by faith, Christian, what is your only hope in life and in death? My only hope is that I belong body and soul in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood has freely paid for all my sins. When we belong to him, then all that is his becomes really ours because he freely gives himself to us and all that he has in the fullness of his grace and mercy and righteousness, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Jesus and his righteousness. This is the joyful affirmation of union with Christ and faith in Christ that we have His righteousness and we are by His grace justified by faith. This is what it means to be, in the words of Romans 3.24, justified freely by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Justified freely as a gift. Now, maybe it would help to illustrate this if I stopped right now and asked you to take up pen and paper and start writing down every sin you'd ever committed. Every single sin of thought, word, and deed. Every secret sin hidden in your heart known only to God. It wouldn't be possible. We couldn't do it. It's not, it's not possible. It's just, a, it's just something, though, to imagine. Think about what it would be like to write down as many sins as you could possibly think of, especially that particular one. I have one. That particular one which still makes you shudder in shame. Just, just make the list. List you would and I would dread to see on Judgment Day. The list that would cause any sane person to ask himself or herself the question, how can a sinner stand in the presence of a righteous, holy God? So suppose that after... We, you, and I had filled page after page after page in notebook after notebook after notebook. Then you have to sign your name. Sign it. Sign your name. Sign your name. And then, suddenly, there appeared beside your name these words written in blood justified 
freely by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus received by faith. You know what Jesus Christ has done for you? He's done that. That is the reason that the Apostle Paul exclaims. Chapter 1, 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. May this verse, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be for you personally an open gate to paradise through personal and true faith in Jesus Christ. I say that to myself, to all of us, to those of us who have professed faith in Christ for years and for the majority of our lives. Never, never let go of the assurance of the gospel, the assurance of your salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Keep walking through that gate on your way to heaven. And may this verse, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be for us as individuals and as a congregation, a call to further and further reformation in our lives, individually and corporately, that our lives might be more nearly conformed to the likeness of Jesus Christ in accordance with His Word and Scripture. And may this verse, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be for you. The means by which God in His grace and mercy will give you a new life you have never known before. A life in the assurance of your salvation, your justification, your peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And to God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, and we we pray that your Holy Spirit will deeply implant your word in our hearts, shower us with your spirit so that your word might spring forth and bear much fruit to the glory of your name. Through Christ our Savior, amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, please stand for the affirmation of faith, the affirmation of the one church of Jesus Christ throughout history and throughout the world, as we say together the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom 